Good to be here, everyone. Beautiful day. I love it when the sun's shining. Really lifts my spirits. Um, so, uh, as Scott said, today we are continuing um, looking at John, and we're looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So, before I read the passage, um, I'm just going to show you a wee story. Uh, so, when I was younger, um, in my pre-uni times and through the uh, holidays, I had a number of different jobs, and Dinah's family always laughed at me at the number of jobs that I had. And you have to forgive me, but I was one of the people who used to ring up and try and sell you a kitchen over the phone. And I must have made a thousand phone calls, and I think one person said, oh yes, I'll get my kitchen designs. And they didn't even buy a kitchen, so <laughs> it, it was quite a demoralising job. But when you're, when you're younger, you just, you just take any job you can get, don't you? So, um, but one job in particular I remember was a job that I had working for a company called High Tech Calibration. And they used to calibrate electronic test equipment. I wasn't involved in that side of the business at all, don't worry. Um, but the job I had was being a delivery guy, and I really enjoyed the job. I used to deliver the test equipment back to the companies um, and pick up the, the test equipment they're waiting to be calibrated and take it back to the depot to, to be calibrated. And the reason I wanted to talk to you about this job is um, this was in the 90s, and in the 90s we didn't have sat-nav. And mobile phones were mobile phones, full stop. And I didn't have a Mac reader sitting next to me. And I was going to places that I'd never been to before. So how did I find my way around? Well, I used to print off Google Maps. We did have Google Maps on, on the computer. Printed it off, had it sitting on the seat next to me. And I'd memorized this, the towns I was going through to get to the ultimate destination. And I read the road signs which I think is a lost art. I think we've all forgotten what road signs are. We don't look at road signs anymore. We rely on sat-navs. And even my car tells me what the speed limit is, and I can press a button so that I can't go over the speed limit. So I don't even need to look at the speed limit signs anymore. So I use road signs to find my way and direct me towards where I needed to be. And um, I looked online for the most random road sign place name I could find, and I found this one here, Sheepy Magma. Um, everybody here, I think, knows that I love sheep. Um, magma, I'm not so worried about. Um, Sheepy Magma, quite a random place name, but this kind of demonstrates road signs quite well, because I've never been to Sheepy Magma, I haven't got a clue what Sheepy Magma is like. I wouldn't even know I was there unless I saw this road sign. But as soon as I passed this road sign, I know, I've got the evidence that I am in Sheepy Magma and that that is Sheepy, Sheepy Magma. So what's the point? What am, I, what am I trying to tell you here? Well, what the signs do, they point towards something, they direct you towards something, they give you evidence that something is something. Um, so signs are important. And what's really interesting about John's Gospel is that we have a number of miracles in John's Gospel. We have miracles in all four of the Gospels. But uniquely in John's Gospel, John calls the miracles signs. And we'll look at why he does that. And interestingly as well, in John's Gospel, there are six or seven, it's debatable, I'll explain that later, signs or, or miracles. Um, and in the other Gospels, there are far more. So in Luke, there is 21. In Matthew, there's 21. And in Mark, there are 20. But this doesn't mean that John thinks Jesus is any less miraculous. In fact, John focuses on these signs in more detail and a smaller number of signs for one purpose, and he uniquely calls them signs for a reason. 
So y is equal to them signs. I'm going to get rid of this um, slide so it doesn't distract you from what I'm trying to say. Um, uh, in John chapter 29, verse 30, John says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in, in this book. And this is the important that he says. But these are written so that you may believe, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John's saying here is these signs that he's writing about are pointing towards Jesus. So they are evidence, they are proof that Jesus is the Son of God. And that later in the Gospel in John, we learn that in believing in him and repenting of our sin, we can have life. In other words, Jesus makes it possible for us to be separated from our sin. And we have all fallen short of God's standard, even the best. And this allows us to be children of God, free from being separated from him by our sin, and the promises and inheritance that he's put aside for us, giving us eternal life and one day a place in his heavenly kingdom where all suffering and pain are gone. So John considered it really important to direct us to this truth and to provide evidence to his readers that Jesus is God, not just a normal guy who did and taught good. That he came to be amongst us on a mission to save us all from our sin. So just before I read the passage, I'm just going to introduce it. So this is the, the passage entitled The Wedding at Cana, but we also know it as Jesus turning water to the wine. And earlier I said that John's Gospel has six or seven signs. And the reason six or seven is because some scholars debate whether Jesus walking on water is a sign. And the reason for that is that the other six, John introduces them as signs. But when he talks about Jesus walking on the water, he doesn't mention that it is a sign. But for me, who else can walk on water other than God? So surely that is a sign. So I would classify that as one of the signs. But that's just a bit of theology uh, that I just wanted to, wanted to add that I found interesting. And the wedding at Cana is such such a well-known passage, one of these passages that we really, really know well. We focus on Jesus turning the water into the wine, but there's so much richness, richness and depth in it that if we explore it in more detail that we see that there's, there's, there's a lot that God wants us to, to get from it. So I'm just going to read now chapter 20, uh, verses 2 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, 
And when the master of the feast tasted the water, had now become wine. And he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So just to, just to set the scene, um, it's just useful to know the geography of where Jesus is at the moment. So um, you can see Jesus at Cana. You can see how close Cana is to Nazareth. We don't know a huge amount about Cana, but we know that Nazareth tells us later in the Bible was a small town, there was a small number of families in Nazareth, um, and obviously uh, Cana was in the next town along. You know, maybe Cana was a bigger place, maybe that was where they went to the market, maybe that's where they bought the provisions, etc. But obviously Jesus would have been known in Cana because it's so close to, to, to Nazareth. And the uh, ancient Jewish weddings were, were big events. Um, you know, today when we get married, it just zooms from like 2 p.m. to maybe midnight and that's it over. Um, but ancient Jewish weddings lasted for a whole week and they were huge events that everybody would look forward to. It would have been one of the highlights of the year. And we know from, from the passage um, that uh, Jesus was invited to this wedding, that his mother Mary was invited to this wedding, and that the disciples were invited to this wedding. But what does it tell us in the passage, but we follow the text through to this passage, we'll know that Jesus has only called five of his disciples at this stage. So there's Jesus, Mary, and his five disciples, and obviously all the other guests, but these are the ones that we're focused, focusing on. And John introduces this passage by saying, on the third day. And that's interesting, it's, it's a bit debatable what John means by the third day. Does he mean the third day after what previously happened? Does he mean the third day of the wedding, or does he mean the third day of the week? Um, something interesting that I find out is that the third day of the week in the Jewish calendar is a Tuesday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And Tuesday was a particularly important day in the Jewish week, because when God created the earth, it tells us in Genesis um, that he said it is good twice on the Tuesday. So often weddings started on Tuesday, so maybe this is what he means by the third day. But I think the point is, there's this phrase on the third day, and that's kind of a well-known phrase for us. That kind of clicks in our head, doesn't it? And it's a phrase that's used throughout uh, multiple times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then ultimately, the third day is the day that Jesus is risen. And what I love about the Bible is there's, there's lots of these little hints dropped in every so often to, to jump our mind into different parts of the Bible. And it reminds me a little bit of... Um, and then if you ever get uh, stuck in a Wikipedia um, bubble, um, sometimes I want to look something up in Wikipedia, and then I'm reading through and there's a hyphen, I want to know about that, and I jump to that, and then I want to know about that, and I jump to that. I'm jumping all over the place, and sometimes I jump eventually back to the, the, the first page. Um, if the Bible was written today, I'm sure it would be a web page, and there'd be hyperlinks all over the place, jumping, jumping forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the New Testament to the Old Testament, within the New Testament, within the Old Testament. And there's loads of these little hints and, and hyperlinks, and you know, this passage is a huge hyperlink, which we'll talk about 
a, a wee bit later, but on the third day, it just will, will click in our head. And when we read Jesus being risen on the third day later, that links us back to this passage. So let's just talk about the wine. So wine was obviously important um, in, in, in these events. And the wine wouldn't be paid for by the groom. The groom paid for the wedding. And in those days, wine didn't come in glass bottles of corks so it couldn't be stored for long periods of time like it can now so um, it's suspected that the wine would have been ordered especially for this occasion by the groom and the groom has to supply enough wine for the whole week's event so he has to somehow work out how much wine to order for the number of guests coming for the whole week which must have been pretty tricky and pretty difficult to, uh, to predict and to run out of wine at an event like this would have been hugely significant because effectively it would have cut the celebrations short and it would have been the talk of the town. They didn't have Twitter or Facebook in those days but the equivalent was the chat at the market, the chat at the Sea of Galilee, the chat at the synagogue. Everybody would be talking about, did you hear about so-and-so's wedding? It stopped at day three because they ran out of wine, how embarrassing. And it would have brought shame on the family, it would have brought shame on the groom's family, the bride's family. There's even thought that the bride's family would have sued the, the groom and his family for the shame that would have brought on to them. So it would have been a huge, huge thing to, to run out of wine. And when you run out of wine in this situation, because it's, it's kind of made to order, you can't just run down to Tesco's and pick up some wine like we can now. Once you run out of wine, you run out of wine, that's it. That's it over. There's nothing you can do about it. So obviously they ran out of wine at this stage of Texas. So Mary found this out. She came to Jesus and she, you know, she told Jesus this. First question is, you know, why did she come to Jesus? Well, no doubt Mary would have known who Jesus was and what he can do at this stage. And she's also used to relying on him. Jesus is kind of the head of the household at this stage. Um, we don't hear about Joseph anymore from here. Um, the suggestion that Joseph had passed away previous to this, so um, Jesus has become head of household because she's been used to relying on him. And then, um, Jesus comes to, uh, Mary comes to Jesus um, saying that the wine's run out and then we see a slightly strange conversation and with kind of reply that we, we wouldn't expect from Jesus. So Mary simply told him to have no wine and Jesus' reply it almost looks rude to us. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if Dinah asked me to do something, I say, woman, what has this got to do with me? I would get a slap probably. I probably wouldn't be spoken to for a month. Um, to be honest, it's just not worth finding out. This this looks like Jesus is being rude, but sometimes the English language really um, is restricted in, in, in what it can how it can describe things. And sometimes, if a passage looks a bit odd to us in the Bible, sometimes it's useful to go back to the original Greek and try and work out what actually is this saying? Here? Is it is this the limitations of the English language communicating what? Um, the writer wanted to communicate to us. So when you go back to the Greek word that was used, the root word, we find out that it's more, more akin to saying the lady or mom, you know, maybe the, the, the way we speak to the queen or something that we, we have respect for. So he, he was actually using a term of respect here um, rather than being rude as we would first read it. But then we have to ask ourselves, why did he seem to shun her? And refused to do anything about it. Why did he say, what's this got to do with me? And then why did he say, my hour has not yet come? What is he, what is he talking about there? Well, something we need to bear in mind um, 
is that Jesus has just been baptised. Up till now, he's lived a relatively sedate life of 30 years. And then over the next three years, we know it's three years because we read the passages, we know that there's three Passovers between the death and his baptism. So it's three years that his ministry is. Over the next three years, his sole focus is going to be on demonstrating who he was, telling us what the kingdom of God looks like, teaching us the way to our salvation from sin, and of course, his death on the cross. So, and elsewhere, when in John, when Jesus speaks about his hour, he's specifically speaking about his time on the cross. So you can almost imagine that he's just starting his ministry, and he's almost got tunnel vision now, focusing on what God has, has tasked his mission his, 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 to, to do what he's here on earth for. And he's not at that stage yet to release himself into his public ministry. And he doesn't feel ready, the human part of him, to take that step. Once he starts performing miracles and announcing the signs that John's telling us about, that's when it starts to get real. And that's when he's really announced to the world and everything starts. And this is a reminder that as well as being God, he is also human. And he also thinks and he worries like us. And because of that, he understands our worries and his fears because he's been there. So once a miracle is publicly, publicly experienced, it will spread like wildflower. You know, there's this guy who seems to be in control of creation. People just chat and won't be able to hide it. But he still allowed it to happen. You know, we don't know why. Was there a look that's not communicated in the text between his, his mother and himself? You know, the look that you get from your wife or your mother sometimes that, that like, can communicate a thousand words. Um, did he feel compassion for the groom? Did he agree to do it, but keep it quiet? We know that Mary and the servants and the five disciples are the only people who knew that this miracle was happening, so that, that's maybe why it went ahead. But all we know is that she ignored his comment, and she said to the servants, do as he says. So Jesus then spots these six jars, stone jars, um, which were used for the Jewish rites of purification. And that's interesting John tells us that just as, as, as an aside, because he could just tell the readers what the stone jars were, but he specifically explained what they were for, and that's evidence that his gospel is for a wider audience than just the Jews. His gospel, the good news, is for us as much as it is for the Jews. So then Jesus tells them to fill them. So let's just talk about these jars, the significance of these jars, and what were they used for. So these jars were used for spiritual cleansing that was required before coming in the presence of God. And the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are the first five books of the Bible. And they include guidance and rules and lists and what God's people had to do to be able to be in his presence. They demonstrated what sin is and how we are by the very nature unclean, impure and not worthy to be in his presence or have a relationship with him. So spiritual cleansing with water that comes from a spring, the water is called lim water and it can be transported and stored. 
but it really had to come from a spring. That's one of the many things that had to be performed in certain situations to allow access to enter the temple and be closer to God. And these, that's what these jars would have been used for. And previously, the Jews used pottery to store this living water. But interestingly, Leviticus teaches us that stone could not become impure. And as the Romans introduced to Jews the technology of making things out of stone, they were then able to make jars out of stone, which is why we have the stone jars here. So hold the thought that these jars were designed to hold living water that was used to spiritually cleanse the Jews. Why did Jesus say to fill them to the brim? And this is an important part of the passage. Jesus specifically told the servants to fill them to the brim. I think there's two reasons that um, he said this. First thing is, if you think of these jars, if they're filled all the way to the brim, nothing can be added to them. So there's, there's no question that this is a miracle. Because had there been a space, somebody could have gone, well, somebody added some wine or some food colouring or something to it to make it look like wine. But no, they're filled to the brim, so nobody can add anything to it. It's a sign of completeness. But also, filling to the brim is a reflection on Jesus' character. Because he only does things in full. He only loves us 100%. He only died for us 100%. He only takes our burdens, our worries, and he takes our sin 100%. And he therefore only saves us 100%. So just looking at these jars again, it's worth considering how the servants filled these. Because there wasn't a tap in the Jewish home. The water came from a well in the centre of the town, which would be fed by a spring to provide the living water. So they had to go to the well, lower buckets down, pick up the buckets, and then carry this water back. John tells us that there were six jars, each 20 to 30 gallons. And the reason it's 20 to 30 is because you can see the varying size. So on average, they were 20 to 30 gallons. So we know how big they were, and I've worked out that this equates to 440 to 600 litres of water. The tea urns that we use for the coffee at the back of the room, that would be 100 to 150 of those tea urns. So it's half a tonne of water. So I mean, that was no easy task, moving this water from this well into this house. It's a huge task that these servants were doing. They were serving Jesus and doing what he asked them to do. The question for us to ponder this morning as a side is when Jesus asks us to do something, are we loyal followers like these servants were? Do we do his will and step out of our comfort zone, maybe, to follow him and to serve him? That's just a question to ponder. So at some stage, the jars were presented to the master of the feast who is equivalent of the head caterer. And at some stage it turned from water to wine. So imagine how these servants felt. They were moving all this water around. They were doing what Jesus asked them to do. The whole time they were wondering, who is this guy? Why is he wanting us to move this water? You know, we've run out of wine, and is he going to expect us to serve water as an alternative? And at some stage they must have been amazed when they heard the master of the feast proclaim 
that this is the best wine. He turned to the groom and he told him how impressed he was that this is the best wine. So what's, what's going on here? So first thing to say is that wine in ancient Jewish culture was used as joy, celebration. And when we think of drinking in the UK, it tends to be old overindulgence kind. Um, but in ancient Jewish times, it's more akin to how they drink in the Mediterranean. It's drunk with food, it's drunk slowly, uh, it's drunk in a controlled fashion. And also the wine in this time would have been watered down as well. So it was that they were drinking for a, for, for a week, but not, you know, in Britain, many people, they're drinking for a week, well, you can imagine. But um, they, they were drinking this over a week, and the, the groom was told, you know, why did you save the best uh, wine till the end? So what would happen is they would start with the best wine, and although it was drunk in, in a more controlled fashion, there would still obviously be an effect, and towards the end of the week, they would then present the poor wine, which was cheaper. And the, the um, people at the party would have noticed that the poor wine was presented. But the master of the feast obviously did. So, um, and Jesus, he always turns things upside down. And he always does the unexpected. And that's exactly what he did here. He presented the best wine in the end. I'm going to explain a bit more about what that, what that tells us as well. So what, what is happening here? Why is John giving us this story? Well, number one is that this sign is proof that Jesus is God. And it supports the claim that we would have read previously in John chapter 1 verse 3, where he said that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Jesus was actually at the right hand of the Father God before he became a man on earth. And he has been with God since before the creation of the earth. And he was actually involved in creation with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus has demonstrated to us that he is still in control of creation. He was able to take water molecules and change their atomic makeup into wine. So who else can do that except God? And then another exciting bit, I've spoken about the hyperlinks, is that this passage is a hyperlink, a really important hyperlink to the Last Supper. And as we read the Last Supper, the intention is that we remember this passage. And they will remember that these jars that contain living water for spiritual cleansing, but the Torah's sole purpose the rules, the laws, and the guidelines are to demonstrate that we are not worthy to be loved by in a relationship or to spend eternity with God because of our sins. Nobody can tick all the boxes. And as soon as you clean yourself spiritually, you failed again and have to start all over again. And the Torah demonstrated the need for something more complete, something full to the brim like the jars were, something that finishes it all. Something that, that acknowledges our failings but allows us to have a permanent, clean slip. And later in John's Gospel, Jesus tells us that he gives us living water. And that those who drink it 
And notice he says drink it and not wash with it. Those who drink it, those who take it inside, can never thirst again. In other words, Jesus' living water will give us life forever. Jesus' living water will give us eternal life. And when we link this sign, this miracle, to the Last Supper, where Jesus uses wine, again, and bread, as symbols for us to remember the act he will undertake on the cross. And then we link it again to his death on the cross, and then link it again to his resurrection, his raising back to sit on his heavenly throne. And then we link it again forward, where we read in Revelation that one day we will drink new wine with Jesus himself. We realize this passage is a metaphor for what is to come. And his great mission that he was contemplating when, when he said to Mary that his hour has not come. And everything links together perfectly. Isn't that beautiful? And I love it how the Bible has these hyperlinks that link perfectly together in this way. Even on the cross there is another wine hyperlink. When Jesus drinks wine as he's passing, this time the wine he drinks is sour wine. And then when he dies, he proclaims it is finished. His mission on earth is complete. And there's an interesting contrast here. We've got the best wine at the wedding feast versus the sour wine at his time of suffering for us in a magnitude that none of us can explain is so great. And this is another reminder of the future glory that we will have with him. Because Revelation tells us that there will be a great wedding feast. The marriage of the Lamb, the Lamb is Jesus, and we, the church, will be the bride. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the wedding at Canaan is also hyperlink towards this ultimate feast where we will share in the best wine with Jesus. The wine that's full of joy rather than the sour wine that Jesus drank on the cross. So what does John want us to take from reading this sign? At the end of the passage, in verse 11, John says, This was the first of the signs that Jesus performed and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what does he want us to get from this passage? Where it demonstrates, it manifests his glory. It demonstrates his holiness. It demonstrates his splendor and it demonstrates his majesty. It demonstrates that he is God and that he created and he can create. And also allow his disciples and us as readers to believe this. So this is a signpost pointing towards Jesus and supplying us with evidence of who he is. And again, later on in the book, in John chapter 20, verse 30, it's entitled, The Purpose of This Book. So he tells us what the purpose of this book is. And that's it. And he said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He's focusing on these signs again, which were not written. And he says, and the purpose is so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this sign not only told us who he is, but it also reflected forwards to the cross, to Jesus' act of suffering for us. His act of giving us living water 
from which we will never first, cleansing us of our sin well and truly and no longer fully bound by the rules of the Torah. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the Torah, its rules and guidelines that no one could follow fully all the time. He came to fulfil it. Just as the act of turning water to wine did, the Torah points us towards Jesus and the need for us to acknowledge that we are failures, that we are sinners, that we can never reach the standard needed to be an eternal relation with God. That it's only through him, believing in him, repenting of our sins, that we can declare, just as he did on the cross, that it is finished. And those, for those of us who choose to live in this freedom, he invites us to follow him here on earth. He wants to share in the joy with him. Yes, there will be ups and there will be downs. Of course there will. But Jesus takes our burdens. He walks beside us. He carries them for us in love. And we can see this in his glory today, just as the disciples did at the wedding feast. And we are also promised that as believers. But he also invites us to something even greater that is coming. He also invites us to one day share in the eternal feast with him. Revelation tells us, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So ask yourself this question today. Are you invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Will you be at the table at the great heavenly feast and share in the best wine that Jesus has prepared for us? Do you choose to follow Jesus? And just to bring this to a close, there's just something else I want to leave you with to consider this week and just to pray over this week. John has filled this gospel with these great signposts pointing towards Jesus. But have you ever considered that we as Christians are signposts? Are we directing people to Jesus? Are we following his lead and demonstrating his love to those around us on a day-to-day basis? Can we do more to introduce people to Jesus in our lives? Definitely worth praying for this week. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for this beautiful passage. I just want to thank you for the richness and the depth that's hidden in this passage. I want to thank you that the Bible is full of passages like this, where we think we know the passage and then the Holy Spirit just reveals so much truth and so much secrets to us, Lord. And we just want more of that. We just want more of the Holy Spirit revealing your word to us, Lord. We just pray through this week and the coming weeks when we read your word, that it just comes alive to us and the Holy Spirit just reveals more and more to us, Lord. We thank you for the truth that you revealed to us, Lord. The truth that your death and your salvation brings to us, Lord. The, The freedom it brings to us. The fact that we can walk with you in relationship with you, Lord. And we want to thank you for the truth this ultimate feast that you promised us, Lord, that one day we will be with you, we will be by your side, we will be sharing in the best way with you, Jesus, Lord. And we just want to just finish the prayer with this, the truth that we are signposts towards you, Lord. Just help us in the coming week to just direct people towards you. 
in the way that we live, in the way we love, in the way that we speak, in the way that we speak about you, Lord. Just help us to, to just be signposts to you. In Jesus' name.